Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Exodus chapter 3. Uh, so Exodus is the second book uh, in the Bible. So uh, if you're bringing your print copy, you're not exactly sure where that is. It's close to the beginning. Uh, if you're using your phone or a tablet, good news, it's easy for you. You just click on that table of contents thing, scroll down until you find it. Uh, Exodus chapter 3 is where we're going to pick up. Uh, beginning at the, at the start of the year, uh, we have been reading through the Bible together. Uh, like what Bo uh, mentioned earlier, we'd love for you to join us. You don't have to go back and start at the beginning. If you want to grab one of these journals and just pick up where we are, that would be amazing. We'd love for you to join us. Uh, and then we've also been teaching through this big picture story of the Bible. If it's your first time or maybe you missed a few weeks, I just want to remind you here what we believe at Mercy Hill. We believe that the Bible is God's word delivered through human authors to us. And then that one word, the scripture, while it spans uh, thousands of years and has 40 different human authors, several different genres, 66 different books, that that's all one connected, unified story. And that's the story that we want to know. So we're going to pick up in that story in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, just to catch you up. Where we are in the story, Genesis concluded with the descendants of this guy named Jacob, who God changed his name to Israel, living in Egypt, not the land that God had promised to them. But we conclude the story with a promise to Jacob's family, uh, God's people, uh, that they would multiply greatly in Egypt. And when we start the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, we found that that promise is true. That the people, God's chosen people, have multiplied in Egypt and they have become a great people. And in fact, so great that the Egyptians are now fearful of them and their power. And so a new king comes to power in Egypt who doesn't know the story of Jacob's family, doesn't know about his son Joseph who had rose to power in Egypt. And he enslaves God's people, the Hebrews or the Israelites. And in fact, he goes even further. This new king or this new Pharaoh orders the death of all the male Israelite children in order to control their population. So during this time, we meet a new character in our story. His name is Moses. We actually meet Moses at his birth. And when Moses is born, his mother not wanting to follow the instructions of the Pharaoh and an example of civil disobedience hides her baby boy. Then after a period of time, it becomes impossible to hide him anymore. And so she, and some of you are familiar with the story, puts him in a basket and turns him loose in the river with her older daughter, Miriam, following him along the way. Well, sure enough, Moses is found by none other than the daughter of the Pharaoh, who takes great pity and compassion on him, takes him out of the basket, and then Moses' older sister, unbeknownst to Pharaoh's daughter, just pops out on the scene, which I would have loved to have seen, right? Like kind of hiding behind some bushes, and then he's found. She's like, hey, what's going on? And says, hey, if you want a Hebrew or Israelite woman, to nurse this baby, I know the perfect person. 
And so Pharaoh's daughter takes in Moses, sends Moses back to actually live with his own family for a period of time. They raise Moses, send them back to Pharaoh's house. Now, interestingly enough, Moses, as an Israelite growing up in Pharaoh's house, recognizes that there's a problem. The problem is that his people, that he's descendants of, are enslaved. And so Moses, seemingly to be the perfect liberator of the people, a guy who understands Hebrew culture, was raised for part of his life in a Hebrew or Israelite home, and then also understands Egypt, raised in the power and prominence of Pharaoh's home, seems like the perfect guy. And so he decides to take matters into his own hands, and one day he sees an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew And so he intervenes and kills the Egyptian. Well, soon through various twists and turns, that story comes out and he becomes now a marked man. He's rejected by his own people, Hebrews. He's rejected by the Egyptians and Pharaoh wants to kill him. And so Moses leaves home, fleeing for his life and ends up in nowhere. A place called Midian, the wilderness. Connects with a family there starts to become a shepherd there and is living his life as a shepherd in the middle of nowhere, not even thinking about where he came from for years and years and years and years and years. And that's where we pick up on the, in the story in Exodus chapter 3. So if you've got a Bible, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight while the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So here's a scene, Moses in the middle of nowhere, wandering around, keeping watch over these flocks, and he sees a very curious sight. A bush, fire coming out of it, but it's not being burned up. So he does what most of us would do. Let's go check this out. And as he gets closer to check it out, he hears God's voice. God's like, hey, hey man, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but you're already in the danger zone. Like you already crossed over into something that you don't even understand. So you need to stop, take a second, get those shoes off your feet and realize what's actually happening here. Verse seven. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. Taskmasters, I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That's a lot of ites. 
And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So as he's standing there, hiding his face, overwhelmed in fear with what could possibly be happening, God says, hey, I know what's going on in Egypt. I know what's happening in Egypt, Moses, better than you knew what was happening in Egypt. And I have come down to do something about it, to intervene on behalf of my people. And here's the plan. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, the guy that wants you dead. I'm going to send you back to Pharaoh, and here's the deal. You're just going to tell him. God wants you to let my people go. It's a foolproof plan, right? So Moses responds how I think any of us would respond at such a monumental task. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of uh, Israel out of Egypt? Verse 12, and he said, but I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So Moses says, who am I? What are my qualifications? I don't know if you've seen my resume or not, but uh, I didn't jump right into a profession. I've been wandering around here in the wilderness with some sheep for years and years and years. I'm a nobody. Nobody, everybody back there hates me. God's like, oh, but the difference is this time I'm going to be with you. And I love this. God says, I'm going to give you a sign. You know, you always think about the sign being before you do the thing. God's like, this is a sign that's going to be after you do the thing. So you do it, and then I'll verify that I was with you when you did it. You're going to be right back here on this mountain and worship me. What a sign, right? Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to him? What does Moses say? Okay, if who I am is an important, how about you? Who are you? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is, for many of us, a familiar text. And many of you are also reading through the book of Exodus, so maybe you read this. I hope you did this past week. There's all sorts of different ways and different details. This is a never-ending text. You just keep diving into. But what I want to point out is just four simple things from the text that are really important throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. If you've been reading along, have you noticed there's a repeated phrase so far in your reading in the book of Exodus? God says over and over again about what he is doing or about to do so that you may know that I am the Lord. Have you noticed or seen that some of you guys reading along? He says that you may know to Moses. He says that the people may know about the Israelites. He says that the Egyptians may know. He says that Pharaoh may know. In other words, one of the keys to understanding the book of Exodus is understanding that God is at work in the book of Exodus so that people will know precisely who he is. That's what we see in this text too. So four different things that show us something about God's character. 
The first is this real-life metaphor, the fire. God shows up in Exodus, first to Moses as this burning fire, which is not consuming this bush. He shows up for Moses in the middle of nowhere as fire. Now, this fire is a theme all the way through the book of Exodus. We see God show up as fire throughout the book of Exodus. Fire leading the people by night, fire consuming the Egyptians at the Red Sea. Later on, Moses tells the people, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. And this fire draws Moses in. It piques his curiosity. And then also, God makes very clear, this is not a fire to make you comfortable. It says, in fact, Moses, you are on holy ground. Don't come any closer. Take the sandals off of your feet as a sign of respect. God wants Moses to know this is not a circus sideshow or a clever trick. This is an interaction with the divine. So why does God continually show himself as fire? I think it's because fire is both intimate and terrifying. We love fire, don't we? In fact, just in the meeting right beforehand with the the band, Mitchell said the only thing that would make this better is if we had a fire right here. But it get cozy around the fire. Nothing better than a fire in a cold winter night, right? I love Halloween every year. We pull a fire pit out in the middle of our cul-de-sac and just our neighbors come and gather around the fire. Fire is inviting. Something about it that just draws people in. That's why Moses, wandering through the wilderness, sees this fire. Is like, I got to go check this out. But isn't there something equally as terrifying, terrifying about fire? A fire in your fireplace is amazing. A fire two feet outside of your fireplace in the middle of your living room engulfing your couch is an emergency. Absolutely terrifying. And so God, the fire, draws Moses in, turns aside, an invitation to come near, a pull for for God to be understood. And then also we see that Moses looks at the fire and hides his face in fear. That he is both drawn and terrified. That he comes face to face with God's holiness. Now, holiness in the scripture just means other or different. That he recognizes that this interaction is different from any other interaction he's ever had in his entire life. He's being confronted with a holy God. Now for most of us, most of us, when we see or get a glimpse of God's holiness, we just have two reactions. We want to exaggerate our own holiness. We want to do something to puff ourselves up, to show, oh, I belong here. You ever been outclassed in a meeting at work and you knew it? Sitting around the conference table, somehow you got invited to this meeting. You go, oh, I got to prove that I belong. I better say something smart right now. You know, like, man, I got to show myself that I got to show these people. I know what I'm talking about. Sometimes that's what we do. Sometimes what we do is we minimize God's holiness. Because we want to think, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Everybody at this table is the same. 
what Moses experiences is this invitation that's also terrifying. See, fire shapes what it consumes. Fire leaves a mark on whatever it touches. I think God in this real life metaphor wants us to understand that he is inviting us in, but he is also not like us. We don't get to decide what happens after an interaction with the Lord. He gets to decide. We don't necessarily get what we want. We're not in control of this situation. God is. And an interaction with the living God changes or shapes us. So first thing is the metaphor, fire. Second thing is an action. See this in verse 7 and 8? God is acting to what? To deliver. Here's what he says. I've seen their affliction. Here's who I am. I'm a God who sees. He's heard their cries. He says, I'm a God who hears. He knows their suffering. He's like, I'm a God who understands. And I'm a God who comes down to deliver my people out of slavery. I'm going to bring them to somewhere better. Can you imagine Moses interacting with this for the first time? And going, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. I saw, I saw the people's affliction. I was there. I heard their cries. My family was wrapped up in this thing. I understood their suffering, but I was unable to save. And God's pointing out to Moses, the difference between you and me is I act to deliver and I am able to deliver my people. Moses couldn't defend one Hebrew by violence. Isolated moments of vengeance were not going to bring deliverance for God's people. What they needed is what God is saying he's about to do. God's coming down. And he is going to act to deliver. So here's this picture of God so far. Inviting us in, yet holy, very different from us. It's terrifying. Then we understand God from this text is a deliverer who comes down to intervene in the lives of his people. The third thing is God makes a promise. His presence. God says to Moses, who am I that I should go down to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He's full of self-doubt. He's like, listen, God, I don't know if you know about, you know, what happened before, but I actually tried this whole deliverer thing. Uh, It didn't work out. Uh, my, My people hated me. Egyptians hated me. Pharaoh wants to kill me. It was not great. I give it an F, right? Not even a passing grade. I imagine what Moses wants from God at this moment is what you and I often want from God, for God to puff up his self-esteem. For God to go, oh, who are you? You're Moses. Man, you're the adopted son of Pharaoh. Man, you're educated in Pharaoh's house. You got a acute understanding of Egyptian politics. Moses, you're smart and handsome. Everybody wants to follow you. Instead, God doesn't even answer his question. He doesn't say anything about who Moses is. Instead, he gives Moses a promise, and the promise is like, here's what's different. This time, I'm going with you. This time, you're going to have my presence. 
You are 100% right. This task is well beyond you. In fact, it's beyond anyone. There's no good reason for Pharaoh to release his massive slave force. Zero good reasons. There is no invading army coming to take over Egypt and set all these people free. That's not going to happen. There's no appeal, Moses, you can make to power or human decency or morality or religion. Nothing is going to change his mind. Here's what you need. You need me. Good news is I'm giving you a promise. I'm going with you. We learn about God from this text is that his presence brings power and that God's heart is to be present with his people. You, more likely than not, are facing some insurmountable obstacles in your life. You, more likely than not, are going to be in a situation, a circumstance, a relationship where you are powerless. And God's saying, what you need is actually just my presence. Fourth, God gives Moses an identity, his name. Moses says, hey, if I show up to these people and I'm like, hey, the God of your father sent me. Now remember, it's been hundreds of years. Hundreds of years, slavery. They go, what's his name? Who do I say that you are? And God says, I am who I am. This is where we get the name of God, Yahweh. It is just a derivative of the Hebrew word to be. I was like, you go tell them I I be who I be. I am who I am. I'm not like the God of the sea, if that's what you're looking for. I'm the God of all of them. If you're looking for the God of the harvest, that's not me. I am all of it. If you're looking for maybe just like the God of the Hebrews, I mean, I am the God of your fathers, but I'm super clear. I am who I am. I'm the God of all people in all places. I am who I am. I have been who I always have been. I will be who I always have been. I have been the same beginning to end. I'm going to be the same now is on the other side of this thing, Moses. I am who I am. And I'm the one who knows the future. And I'm the one who holds all things in my hand. I love Alec. Mottier says this, in every place, at every point of time, in every circumstance or need, he is. Because like, that's my name. It's just a verb. To be. This means that God is self-sufficient. He is not dependent on anyone or anything. He does not need, like the Egyptian gods, sacrifices to make the crops grow. He does not need obedience to keep the world spinning around. Jackie Hill Perry says he is free from the need of anything else but himself for himself to be. He is completely self-sufficient. This also means that he is self-defining, that God is who he is. God gets to tell us who who he is. We don't get to show up and tell him. Could you imagine how quickly this would go sideways? If Moses was like, okay, 
I've been thinking about the plan. Um, here's a couple of things I'm going to need you to do for me. There's a few ways I need this to happen. Here's who I need you to be. God's like, son, don't you remember my name? I am who I am. Man, I'm not who you want me to be. God's name is I am who I am, not I am who you want me to be. And this might be the most important thing that I say to you this morning. God the fire saying, I shape you, you don't shape me. God the deliverer is saying, I don't run on your timetable, I run on mine. God the, who promises his presence is saying, it's not you that makes the difference, it's me. I am who I am. God is not a genie in a bottle whom we summon when we need him. God works independent of us in his own ways and in any way that he chooses, that's his name. Now, this can be hard to take. You start putting this together. This all-consuming, uncontrollable fire. This deliverer that shows up in his own time when he decides to intervene. This promise maker of his presence, but then we find out his presence brings us holiness, which makes us incredibly uncomfortable. And we start to get this picture of a God who is not controlled by us. We want the fire, but we only want it in the fireplace. We want the rescue, but only according to our time frame. We want his presence, but only when it's convenient. God's like, no, I, I am who I am. That's not the way I work. You're going to have to change. You're going to have to listen. You're going to have to be open. You're going to have to be honest. This is not going to work on your time frame, around your convenience, or when it's comfortable. This metaphor, God's action, his promise of his presence, and his identity all point us in a completely different direction than the way that we normally think about God. God works for our good. Yes, we're about to see that in the story. God is going to work for the good of his people, but he is not bound to work according to our calendar or our conveniences or our preferences, which is hard to take. But there's really, really good news about this sort of God. Alec, Alec Montier again says this, there is no way in which our emerging needs and ever-changing circumstances and demands can catch him out, prove him inadequate, or reach the end of his resources and competencies. Do you hear the good news? That while often this is not the God that we want, this is the God that we need. And as your needs change, as your circumstances change, as demands change, you are not catching him without a sufficient response. We cannot put him in a situation where he is inadequate. We will never reach the end of his resources. There is nothing that he does not know or understand. While terrifying, this is the God that we absolutely need. A God not crafted in our image, but who crafts us in his. A God that's not reactionary based on our circumstances, but is sovereign over all things. A God who is never caught by surprise. 
There's even better news. Better news about God's character. Is that the story of Exodus isn't the only rescue mission in the Bible. The story of Exodus isn't the only time that God intervenes to save. It's not the only time he extends an invitation. It's not the only time people are standing before him on holy ground. It is not the only time that he is present with us. And it is not the only time that he proves himself to be, I am who I am. It is not the only time that God intervenes to rescue. But if we fast forward the story, we get into the New Testament to Matthew, God shows up. In the form of the baby, what's everybody say about him? It's God with us or Emmanuel. That God acts in the person of Jesus to save and to rescue. God the fire shows up in person. God the deliverer shows up in person. This, not, this time not sending Moses another prophet, instead coming himself. John 8, 58, Jesus being questioned by some Pharisees, and he just simply says this to them. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him because Jesus hid himself, uh, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What happens? Jesus is like, hey, uh, here's what I need you to know. You remember God's name from Exodus chapter 3, I am? Before Abraham was even a thought, before Isaac was even a thought, before Jacob was even a thought, before anybody ever even heard of Moses, guess what? That's me. You want to know who was talking to Moses out of the burning bush? I am, that's me. And I have come as God in the flesh to rescue my people. Jesus' claim is that he is the God that appeared to Moses in the burning bush, that he is the fire, but this time the fire is in person. And the invitation and the terrifying nature, John says, is grace and truth. That Jesus showed up to welcome us in, an invitation, come and draw near, but not slowing down on the truth. Saying, hey, if you want to come to me, you got to be honest about your condition. If you want to receive this invitation, it's going to require some honesty from you. That Jesus came as a promised deliverer. God come down in person. That the fire took on flesh. That Jesus is God's very presence with him. That he walked with his people. That he lived alongside his people. And that Jesus is the self-sufficient, self-defining God. Which means. Which means that this Exodus story is a story for you and for me. That you and I are not enslaved in Egypt under the taskmasters of Pharaoh. But you and I are enslaved. And we are enslaved, the scripture says, to this thing called sin. Which is destroying our lives and has separated us from God. And the only option for us is not we need to be like Moses early in the Exodus story. Scripture is very clear. You can't deliver yourself from the slaver. You need a deliverer. And that's why Jesus came. On a mission to rescue his people from the slavery of sin. Which means, let me say this again, on a mission to rescue you from the slavery of sin. To liberate you, to set you free.
So the first question this morning is, is it possible that today is the day when you realize that you actually need to be rescued? That your moral effort is not going to be enough to free you from the slavery of sin? That your church attendance, although I'm very glad you're here, is just simply not enough? That your family history Man, fourth generation Baptists, not enough. Now, what you need is an encounter with the fire. What you need is to know Jesus. To come to a point where you go, I recognize my sin is destroying my life and separated me from God. I recognize my need to be rescued. And I know that Jesus came to rescue me. That he lived the perfect life I was supposed to live. He died on the cross of death that I deserve, that he rose from the dead, guaranteeing me a new life in the next life. And that's what I need. And for those of us who are just stuck, Followers of Jesus, we've trusted Jesus to rescue from, uh, from our sin, but we're in the middle of a situation right now that seems desperate. We need a God who delivers, a God who intervenes, a God who promises his presence. We need that sort of God. We need to figure out if we can trust him or not. I, some of you, I, am, I admire you so much. There's some people in this room that I greatly admire. Here's why. Because you have walked through exceedingly difficult circumstances. Your life has been stretched, pulled apart. You've had to fight for your faith. And the thing that for so many of you has held you fast, she's like, but I know God. It's amazing. The good news about God being self-defining is when Jesus says, I am in John chapter 8, that means we know God the best when we look to Jesus. So if today you came in with some doubts, today you came in feeling like you're life is being pulled apart. Today you're trying to figure out where God is in this whole uh, mess of your life. The encouragement for you today is you can look to Jesus. You know God loves you because of Jesus. You know God is with you despite what your circumstances say because of Jesus. You know God has a plan for your future because of Jesus. It might not involve the restoration of every relationship in your life currently, but it does involve the restoration of you at the end. And you and I, in the middle of our difficulty, can look to Christ. Self-definition of who God is. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.